Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, Ezra chapter 5, continued. We're going to continue today in the book of Ezra. Ezra, however, we're in the midst of a substantial detour to look at uh, the invaluable contributions of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that they made to the rebuilding of the temple. Now these two prophets were, predictably, bringing to the Jewish returnees the encouraging and the cautioning word of God that was needed so desperately to readjust their motives and their priorities. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are almost entirely historical in their content. They list human events and outcomes. Thus, we get the perspective of the human beings involved at various stages of the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and the repopulating of the land with, with native Jews. Haggai and Zechariah, however, give us the divine spiritual perspective. You know, a long time ago, in our study of the book of Genesis, I coined a term for this phenomenon of dual spheres of reality. The invisible spiritual and the visible physical operating simultaneously and cooperatively. And I called it the reality of duality. And until and unless a human being recognizes this foundational, this immutable governing dynamic that was established by our Creator at the beginning, we shall forever operate with only a fraction of our available resources. And we'll see our lives and our experiences and our world through an incomplete and therefore altered reality. Therefore, whereas we've spent much time establishing a timeline of historical events in Ezra, trying to put historical activities in perspective and connecting some dots, the oracles of God from these two prophets affords us the opportunity to examine more of God's nature, more of His principles, how they affect His people and his enemies, as well as mankind's historical trajectory. So as Ezra chapter 5 opens, verse 1 explains that Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Judahites in the name of the God of Israel. And verse 2 tells us that as a result of God's oracles, Zerubbabel, the leader of the Jewish people, and Yeshua, who was the high priest, responded by actively building the temple. The rebuilding project had been shelved for 35 years as a result of this constant social and political pressures that were exerted by various groups of local inhabitants with the most vocal, the most antagonistic of the groups being the Sumerians. Now the Sumerians consisted of Gentiles who had been forcibly moved from other nations, their own nations, into the, uh, in the Assyrian Empire into the former territory of the northern ten Israelite tribes but some, some two centuries earlier. And some of them had intermarried with the small fragments of Hebrews that in various ways escaped deportation or they were maybe intentionally left behind to serve their Assyrian conquerors in one capacity or another. The remaining Ephraim Israelites, members of those ten northern tribes, had 400 years earlier fallen into a perverted form of worship. Because Jeroboam, the first king over the ten northern tribes, that was after the civil war that tore the nation of Israel into two following King Solomon's death, Jeroboam decided that he wanted not only a political but a religious divide between his kingdom and Judah. So he ordered that a golden calf was built as a molten image of Yehovah, 
an alternate and a fraudulent priesthood modeled after the Jerusalem-based priesthood was established and also a temple was built in Samaria. So when the exiled Jews returned to Jerusalem with the mandate from Cyrus, king of Persia, to rebuild their house of God, they were immediately approached by a delegation of Sumerians who insisted that they be involved in all phases of rebuilding the temple. They felt that they had an inherent right to be part of the process, meaning that they would also have participation in its operations and its rituals. Because they had a belief that they worshipped the same God as the Jews. Zerubbabel unequivocally refused their offer. I think this would be a good opportunity to again address the issue of how one identifies who God is. Sounds so simple. How do we identify who God is? And when one is seeking or worshiping God, just who is it that they are seeking and worshiping? Now sometimes it seems to us that this issue was something faced only by ancient or primitive people. But this is a present problem in the 21st century. And it's a growing danger within many of our Christian institutions. And while a theologian might want to nuance the matter far more than I do, the bottom line is that you can only know and identify God by means of His name and His attributes. By His attributes I mean His nature, His character. So as concerns our story in Ezra, the moment that the Israelites of the ten tribes built that golden calf, they assigned to Jehovah God a substantially different attribute than who He actually is. The moment they created an unauthorized priesthood and they built a different temple and a place not chosen by Jehovah as the place where his name was to be established, they fundamentally changed the attributes and the commandments of the God that they claimed to follow. Thus, who the northern ten tribes defined as God evolved into something fundamentally different than who he actually is according to his Torah according to his prophets according to all of his word once that happened they found themselves worshipping a figment of their imaginings something of their own creation not the God of the Bible they were worshipping a false God even though they didn't think so Was that their intent? I mean, did they mean to create and worship a false god? Certainly doesn't appear so. But see, this is a profound object lesson that is as fundamental to our faith as is salvation in Christ. To remake God in our own image, no matter how high-minded, no matter how pragmatic and feel-good and modern, that it might seem to us is called idolatry. Where can we find the true name, attributes, and definition of who God is? In the Bible. First and foremost, in the Torah. And if we stray from that definition by adding to it or we subtract from it by disqualifying any of his attributes or by overemphasizing some attributes while diminishing others or if we change his name or we assign him new and different characteristics we've made a grave error that will likely lead to eternal consequences and that's because what we're actually worshiping is something other than God I can say with confidence that all beings, human or spiritual, are essentially a sum of their attributes and characteristics. 
Thus we can no more look at an ape and declare that it's another kind of human being than we can look at a golden calf or worship a European Jesus and declare that the Lord has shed all of His other attributes than love and mercy and yet still call Him Yehovah, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because we've invented a different God. I want you to open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Now the last time we discussed chapter 1 at length and discovered that while the Jews felt that this severe opposition that they faced that brought the reconstruction of the temple to a 35 year halt was a reasonable cause for ceasing their efforts they also apparently felt that God would surely agree because as it says in verse 2 of chapter 1 here is what Adonai Zebaot says this people is saying that now isn't the time the time hasn't yet arrived for Adonai's house to be rebuilt the Jewish people are assuming that because there's tough opposition to rebuilding the temple it must mean it's not yet time for it to happen I suppose that they expected the building of the temple would not be unlike their release from captivity that is they were just kind of living their lives assimilating into the Babylonian culture actually enjoying the favor that Nebuchadnezzar and his, his successors bestowed upon the Jews when all of a sudden Persia conquers Babylon and almost overnight their captivity ends and what did the Jews do to bring about their own release nothing God used Cyrus to punish to defeat Babylon and then to deliver his people so when the exiles go back to Judah and find nothing but opposition and threats I imagine their instincts were to sit back and wait just like they did up in Babylon until God removed all the impediments to rebuilding the temple and the holy city however that is certainly not what the Lord intended and he tells them so in Haggai 1 verse 4 he says, so is now the time for you to be living in your own paneled houses while this house, meaning God's house, lies in ruins. Thus we have the physical human perspective clashing with the divine spiritual perspective. The good news is that Haggai's message achieved its purposes and the Jews got back to work regardless of the fierce opposition to the project. So now let's reread Haggai chapter 2. We'll just read the first nine verses of it. It's on page 772 if you have complete Jewish Bible. (laughs) On the 21st day of the seventh month, this word of Adonai came through Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Yehuda, Judah, and to Yahashua, Yeshua, the son of Yehosadak, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, and to the rest of the people, and say this to them. Who among you is left that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Seems like nothing to you, doesn't it? Nevertheless, Zerubbabel, take courage now. Says Adonai, take courage, Yahashua, the son of Yehosadak, the Kohen Hagadol. Take courage, all of you people of the land, says Adonai. Get to work, for I'm with you, says Adonai Zebaot. This is in keeping with the word that I promised in a covenant with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains with you. So don't be afraid. For this is what Adonai Zebaot says. It won't be long before one more time I'll shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will flow in. And I will fill this house with glory, says Adonai Zebaot. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, 
says Adam Isaiah, the glory of this new house will surpass that of the old, says Adam Isaiah, and in this place I will grant shalom, says Adam Isaiah. In chapter 1, Haggai received his first oracle on the first day of the sixth month of Darius's second year in power. That would have been around 521 or 520 BC. Now, about 50 days later, towards the end of the seventh month, Haggai receives a second oracle. Just like the first one, he was to take this message to Zerubbabel and to the high priest. However, this time, the message is also to go to the people. And a question begins the oracle. Who among you has seen the glory of the first house? That is, who of the returnees might actually have seen the temple before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it around 70 years earlier? Indeed, some had personally seen Solomon's temple before it became a ruin. They would have been children, maybe very young adults at the time, but quite elderly right now. And so the Lord continues with, it seems like nothing to you, doesn't it? At the moment, all that remained of the temple was an aborted attempt at building a foundation. And just one look at it made it obvious this new one wasn't going to measure up to what it had once been. This greatly disturbed, especially those who had envisioned a, a new temple that was as fabulous as the original one. But now reality was setting in. Nonetheless, the Lord encouraged them and He told them they had no reason to keep procrastinating. None. It was time to build right now. And that He's with them. Now be mindful that these last words mean that God has ended His temporary abandonment of them, that He's once again with the people of Judah. Verse 5 says that the reason that He's with them, it's a very specific reason, is that it's based on the word that I promised a covenant in a covenant with you when you came out of Egypt. That word and that covenant are what Moses received on Mount Sinai. Remember how that covenant begins? In Exodus 20, verse 1, then God said all these words, I am Adonai your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. I am Adonai, your God. Iove is reminding Judah through Haggai that nothing has changed since the days of Moses. Oh yes, Judah went astray. Yes, Judah was punished with exile. Yes, God turned His holy back on His people for the 70 years that He promised He would in consequence of their unfaithfulness towards Him. But, through the prophet Jeremiah, He also promised He'd take them back. He remains their God. Open your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. We're going to go to chapter 29, which is on page 595 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. That's Jeremiah chapter 29. Give you a moment to get there. We're going to read from verses 4 through 14. Just a few verses that says an awful lot. Here is what Adonai Zevaot, the God of Israel, says to all of those in exile whom I caused to be carried off from Jerusalem to Babel. Build yourself houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat what they produce, choose women to marry, 
Have sons and daughters. Choose wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage to men so that they can have sons and daughters and increase your numbers there. Don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city to which I've caused you to go in exile and pray to Adonai on its behalf because your welfare is bound up in its welfare. For this is what Adonai Zebaot, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are living among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't pay attention to the dreams that you urge them to dream. For they are prophesying falsely in my name. I've not sent them, says Adonai. For here is what Adonai says. After Babel's 70 years are over, I will remember you. I will fulfill my good promise to you by bringing you back to this place. For I know what plans I have in mind for you, says Adonai. Plans for well-being, not for bad things, so that you can have a hope in the future. And when you call to me and you pray to me I'll listen to you and when you seek me you'll find me provided you seek me wholeheartedly and I will let you find me says Adonai then I will reverse your exile I'll gather you from all the nations and places where I've driven you says Adonai and bring you back to the place from which I exiled you It was Jeremiah's words that the Jews clung to. It was Jeremiah's words that Daniel kept at the forefront of his mind. And as time passed, he began to wonder exactly when that 70 years of exile would end. But it was the Mosaic Covenant of Mount Sinai that the Lord said ah that's the basis for his reestablishing his relationship with his people it's only that the prophet said it would happen do you see the difference the prophet said it would happen the renewal would happen but what was it based on the covenant of Mount Sinai then in verse 6 we hit some controversy Verse 6 of Haggai. It speaks of the Lord shaking the nations, meaning Gentile nations, and that great wealth would flow in from Judah, or flow into Judah. And in addition, this rebuilt temple would epitomize God's glory. In fact, says the Lord in verse 9, the glory of this new temple is going to eventually surpass that of Solomon's. Further, it is in this place, in Jerusalem, at this temple, this would be the place that he would grant shalom, peace, well-being. The controversy is this. Is this speaking of a near future to Ezra or a far future? A future that perhaps has even today not yet arrived. We could spend a lot of time going over the many reasonable scholarly debates about this prophecy. Indeed, how we interpret this matters to both our understanding of the ancient times and perhaps our future. So to cut to the chase, here's how I interpret this passage. It is both a near-term to Ezra and a long-term prophecy. This, it happens and then it happens again nature of prophecies is something we've discussed on numerous occasions and hindsight has shown this aspect of prophecy to be so. God shaking the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, shaking the nations. What that indicates is an enormous upheaval and change. And as Zechariah is going to show us, this central change will occur within earthly governments 
and powers. But what is described is so broadly defined that we can't confine it to only one event or even one era. Further, verse 6 begins God's statement by telling us that it won't be long until the shaking happens. Won't be long. Therefore, for those who say that now, 2,500 years from the giving of this oracle, that the Lord still hasn't shaken the heavens and the earth and the nations, that kind of cheapens the plain meaning of the words. Yes, it's true. To the Lord, a day is a thousand years. And the Lord lives in a place of eternity where we dwell in a place where time dominates us. Thus, it won't be long is a way to express relative time. And if he meant that it would be thousands of years, then to say it won't be long would have very little meaning to humans. So did the Lord shake the nations and make huge changes on earth not very long from Israel's day? You bet he did. About 190 years later, the Greeks would conquer the Persians and they would fundamentally change the world. A new empire arose. The Greek Empire. The Third Empire as foretold by Daniel's dream statue that symbolizes four successive Gentile world empires. But did that event shake the heavens? Meaning what we see up in the sky. The stars, the galaxies, the moon, the sun. Not so far as we know, unless this is just a statement of exaggeration or maybe it's a figure of speech. I don't believe it's any of that. Thus this prophecy would, very typically actually, first, only partially happen, but yet it was in a pretty big way, around 330 BC, when Alexander the Great became king over the known world, but the fullest fulfillment is yet to come. It must always be remembered, and please tuck this away in your memory banks, that all prophecies are given in relation to Israel and to God's people. Check them out. All prophecies are given in relation to Israel and to God's people. They always concern some outcome or another for the land or the people of Israel. Always. What happens to the Gentile nations is invariably for Israel's sake. And it's meant to kick the ball forward in the Lord's redemption plans. Thus the shaking of the nations and the shaking of the heavens portends an outcome that in some way or another is going to bear greatly upon Israel. Will Gentiles and Gentile nations, meaning every nation on earth except Israel, be affected? Oh yes. And often to a catastrophic extent. But much like horrific things happened to Egypt for the sake of God's people, so will every prophetic happening that's still ahead of us happen for the sake of God's people. The good news is that as it affects individuals, if you are truly redeemed in Yeshua, you are grafted in among God's people. So it's for our sakes as well. Isn't that great news? But it's quite different when it comes to nations as opposed to individuals. The Lord is willing to sacrifice every nation on earth for the sake of His land and His people Israel. And part of the reason for this 
is because the human governments of every nation on earth, I don't care what their political philosophy or structure might be, must and will come to a crashing end. Because an entirely new and permanent divine government led by Messiah Yeshua is going to replace all of them. And where will its world capital be? Jerusalem in Israel. And yet, would Ezra's temple ever rightfully fulfill this prophecy in the second chapter of Haggai verse 9 that says that this new house is going to surpass the glory of the old one? The same place that it says that those who had seen the old one just laid down and wept. They were so disappointed. Yes, it would happen. Ezra's temple would be renovated, remodeled, expanded by King Herod 500 years later. The glory of Herod's temple would indeed surpass Solomon's in every way. This same pattern, I believe, will happen with the next temple, often called the third temple, the one that is soon coming. This is the one that the Antichrist will step into and declare himself to be God. While this is only my opinion, because unfulfilled prophecy cannot be fully seen, especially clearly, it can only be seen clearly in hindsight. That's the reality of unfulfilled prophecy. I believe that Ezekiel's temple is going to be much like Herod's in the sense that it's going to be a large-scale renovation and expansion of the end times temple that could be constructed any time now. Everything that is needed for the next temple is ready. It's in place, except for the will to do it. This is what we've been reading about in Ezra. They had everything, except the will to do it. To clarify, Ezra's temple was and is seen as the second temple. Solomon's was the first because Solomon's temple had been destroyed right down to the foundations. And this Ezra's was a totally new structure. Herod's temple is usually seen as merely a grand extension of the second temple rather than as a third temple because Ezra's temple was never destroyed. And the coming temple, the third temple, will be the final temple, in my view, but later it will be brought to an even greater glory. I see nothing in scriptures that definitively suggests that the third temple will be destroyed despite global war and the decimation of Israel that's coming, and then it would be replaced by a fourth one. Might it be damaged? Oh, certainly. But nothing suggests that it will become a heap, either through war or by a demolition crew to make way for a fourth temple described in the Bible as Ezekiel's temple. Yet, I suppose we're just going to have to wait and see, won't we? Verse 10 begins a third oracle from God through Haggai. It occurred two months and three days after Haggai's second oracle. So these oracles now are coming fast and furious, even faster really than it appears to us in only reading Haggai. So I need to qualify this statement about this being God's third oracle through Haggai because the Jewish people received another oracle as well, but this one was from Zechariah. They received Zechariah's first oracle in between Haggai's second and third oracle. In other words, the first oracle that God gave to the Jews happened in the sixth month 
through Haggai. The second oracle happened in the seventh month, again through Haggai. The third oracle that God gave to the Jews was from Zechariah. It happened in the eighth month, we're told. And the one that we're just about to discuss is actually the fourth oracle given to the Jews. This one in the ninth month. But now we're back to Haggai as the prophet of record. So, as of now, the scoreboard reads three oracles for Haggai, one for Zechariah. Now, rather than switch just yet to study Zechariah, we're going to finish out Haggai to keep some comp continuity. Haggai's third oracle is hugely problematic. I can't begin to tell you the variations of opinions about it that has led to some rather dramatic changes to the scripture passage by some scholars, including Rashi. Let's see how quickly you can spot what the issue is. Open up your Bibles again to the second book of Haggai and we're going to start reading at verse um, 10. Second uh, chapter of Haggai, which is on page 772, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start reading at verse 10 and go to the end. <clears throat> on the, uh, uh, here we are. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Dariavesh, Darius, this word of Adonai came through Haggai the prophet. Here's what Adonai Zebo says. Ask the priests what the Torah says about this. If someone carries meat that's been set aside as holy in a fold of his cloak, and then he lets his cloak touch bread, stew, wine, olive oil, or any other food, does that food become holy too? And the Kohanim answered, no. And then Haggai asked if someone who is unclean from having had contact with a corpse touches any of these food items, will they become unclean? And the priests answered, they become unclean. And Haggai then said, that is the condition of this people. That is the condition of this nation before me, says Adonai, and that is the condition of everything their hands produce, so that anything they offer there is unclean. Now please, from this day on, keep this in mind. Before you begin laying stones on each other to rebuild the temple of Adonai, throughout that whole time when someone approaches, approached a 20-measure pile of grain, he found only 10. And when he came to the wine press to draw out 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you with blasting winds, mildew, hail on, on everything your hands produce, but you still wouldn't return to me, says Adonai. So please keep this in mind. From this day on, from the 24th day of this ninth month, from the day the foundation of Adonai's temple was laid, consider this. There's no longer any seed in the barn, is there? The vine, fig tree, pomegranate tree, and olive oil have produced nothing yet, Right? However, from this day on, I will bless you. The word of Adonai came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, as follows. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overturn the chariots and the people riding in them. The horses and the riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And when that day comes, says Adonai Zebod, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says Adonai, and I will wear you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says Adonai Zebod. The oracle takes on a strange opening rhetorical question that is said to be aimed at the Kohanim, the priests. Now, who answered as the representative of the priests, we're not told. We could probably reasonably speculate that it was Yeshua, the high priest, as some scholars and rabbis assert, but, that, but it seems awfully easy to merely say Yeshua or the high priest if indeed that was the case. So probably it was a council of the most senior common priests who were approached by Haggai and after some discussion they give Haggai their answer. And here is the question, once again, that is posed to them by Yehovah in verse 12. 
If someone carries meat that's been set aside as holy in a fold of his cloak, and then he lets his cloak touch bread, stew, wine, olive oil, or any other food, does that food become holy too? And the Kohanim answered no. Then a second question is asked by the Lord through Haggai, presumably to the same group of Kohanim priests, and that's in verse 13. Then Haggai asked if someone who was unclean from having had contact with a corpse touches any of these foods, will they become unclean? And the Kohanim answered, they become unclean. Okay. Anyone have any problems with this yet so far? Well, I do. So do many rabbis. The problem is quite straightforward. It's in verse 12. Regards a person carrying sanctified meat in their priestly apron, meaning meat that is part of a sacrificial offering. And it is if that priestly garment accidentally touches other food items, does the food that it touches contract holiness? And what did the priests answer? No. And if indeed they did answer the question that way, they're wrong. The priests answered no. But in fact, holiness is infectious. And we have a number of examples of infectious holiness in the Bible. One of the most famous ones being out in the wilderness during the exodus uh, from Egypt when Korah thought to get 250 men to bring their fire pans with hot coals and incense in them, bring them to the wilderness tabernacle to offer incense to the Lord. As they neared the tabernacle, the Lord sent a burst of heat and fire upon them that incinerated every last man. But the Lord commanded this as well. In Numbers 17.1, Adonai said to Moses, Tell Eleazar the son of Aaron the Cohen to remove those fire pans from the fire and scatter the moldering coals at a distance because they've become holy. Also the fire pans of those men whose sin cost them their lives, they've become holy because they were offered before Adonai. Therefore have them hammered into plates to cover the altar. This will be as a sign for the people of Israel. The proximity to God at the tabernacle infected these men, their hot coals, and even their metal fire pans with holiness. But the book of Ezekiel addresses this matter of holiness being infectious from yet another angle. What happens specifically with holy garments when they touch other things? Because that was the, the question that was asked in Haggai. In Ezekiel 44, 17-19, it says this, Once they enter the gates of the inner courtyard, they are to wear linen clothing. They are not to wear wool while serving at the gates of the inner courtyard or inside of it. They are to wear linen turbans on their heads and linen underclothes on their bodies. They are not to wear anything that makes them sweat. Before going out to the people in the outer courtyard, they are to remove the clothes in which they minister, lay them in holy rooms, and put on other clothes so that they won't transmit holiness to the people by means of their clothing. I could exhibit a number of other passages that express this same thought. But the point is, These priestly garments can and do transmit their holiness, but the priest said, no, they don't. Wrong answer. Now, could this have been a copyist error? Do we have a bad translation? That's what some scholars think. Rashi goes so far as to say, as used here, that the standard word for holy in the Bible, the Hebrew word kadosh, doesn't mean holy. This time it means defiled. But that's a rationalization that for me is just too far-fetched to even consider. The next question asked about uncleanness regarding a person coming into contact with a corpse, then touching food, 
And whether that food becomes unclean. And the priest gave the correct answer. Yes, it does. It becomes unclean. Then through Haggai, in verse 14, the Lord says that being unclean is the condition of this people, this Am, and this nation, this Goy before me. Here we have another conundrum. It's usual for the Lord to refer to His people as His Am, His people. But Goy has long been a term reserved for the Gentile nations, not for Israel and not for Judah. So the question is, is the Lord just kind of repeating Himself and calling the Jews both His Am, a people, and a Goy, a nation? Or is He speaking about two different entities? Now my best stab at it is that since there are indeed representatives of two different people groups, that are going to be involved in one way or another with the rebuilding of the temple, the Am, meaning the Jewish people, and the Goy, referring to the part Hebrew, part Gentile Sumerians, who will necessarily be supplying building materials and other needed construction items, both are being called equally unclean before the Lord because of their behavior and their attitudes. Further notice this. After answering the question about the holy priestly garments being used to carry sacrificial meat, touching other food, and according to the priest, not transmitting their holiness to the to food, the question and its answers just left hanging there in space. Nothing more is made out of it. In other words, The second question about uncleanness, which is answered correctly, is what the Lord then immediately uses to illustrate His determination that the Am and the Goy are both unclean in His eyes. There is no follow-up with the substance or the purpose of the first question. And we notice that the priests are not exempt from this determination that all are unclean in God's eyes. It makes me think that perhaps we're meant to notice the wrong answer from the priests who ought to know the answer. Of all people, they ought to know the answer to whether holiness can be transmitted by their own priestly garments in order that we see that the priests and the common people are all unclean in God's eyes because they're willfully ignorant about the most basic questions of the operation of holiness and defilement which are fundamental to the laws of Moses and therefore to the worship of God. Now remember, up in Babylon, the law of Moses was not observed so far as we know, so far as we read in the scriptures. We also learn that these exiles began to invent rituals and observances to try to obtain a measure of cleanness and atonement, even though those inventions weren't authorized by the Torah. So why should we think that the lay people or the priests were now suddenly knowledgeable on the intricacies of the law? So starting in verse 15, the Lord explains that it is because the Jews do not obey the law, even though they think they might, their harvests are small. Winds dry up the ground. Hail comes, it harms the crops, the animals more. However, says the Lord in verse 19, from this day forward, the day they begin the work on the temple, in a ritually clean manner, on this day, the Lord will reverse His policy of holding back, of frustrating His people's efforts, and instead, He will allow His blessings to flow abundantly on His people. He will even now view His people as clean instead of unclean. Thus, to In the book of Haggai, now, a fourth oracle to Haggai. 
Remember now, this will be the fifth one overall, counting the other one that's through Zechariah, which we had not read yet. And in some ways, this fourth one is an expansion of the second one. God says He's going to shake the heavens and the earth, He's going to overturn kingdoms, destroy their strength, and then speaking of chariots and riders and horses, He says He's going to essentially destroy their war-making implements and capacity. But the final verse, take a look at it, needs a bit of explanation. It says that when that day comes, the Lord shall wear Zerubbabel like a signet ring. Because God has chosen him. First, this can only be referring to a time when kingdoms have been overturned. And war machinery has been destroyed. And so on and so forth. Because that's the context. None of that happened during Zerubbabel's or Ezra's or Nehemiah's time. I think the tremendous 19th century Bible scholar C.F. Keel has it right. It's not the person of Zerubbabel, but rather it's the office that Zerubbabel holds that's being referred to. Zerubbabel is the current Jewish leader of the Jewish people. But even more, from God's perspective, the issue is that Zerubbabel is a royal descendant of King David through Zerubbabel's father, Shealtiel. So this is very likely a messianic end times prophecy. That's why it's given separately as Haggai's fourth oracle. This prophecy explains that after the shaking of the earth and of the heavens and of the nations, the leader of the Jews, who by definition has to be a member of the royal house of David, will be worn by the Father as his signet ring. That is, this Jewish leader will have the full authority of his Father. Who else can that be but Yeshua HaMashiach? sitting on the throne after he returns. Who else could it be but that? The prophets and the book of Revelation tells us that after Armageddon, when all the world's war machines and armies have been defeated, after the heavens have been shaken, the moon turns bloody red, stars fall from the sky, then shall our Lord Yeshua a descendant of King David rule the world as king. Next time we'll take up the prophet Zechariah.